Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About bonus episode. How's it going, Kaylee? <laughs> I'm good. I'm so excited about this bonus episode. Yeah, well, you know, we had such a great conversation with Rakib, and we had all this great content, so we thought we'd do something special with it. Absolutely. So in our last episode, we spoke with Rakib Tesfe, and Rakib is a neuroscientist studying sleep and sleep disturbance among youth with autism. And if you haven't already listened to that episode, go back Start there to learn all about sleep science. Spoiler, it's awesome, <laughs> and we need we need more of it. How are you sleeping right now, Michael? Are you sleeping okay? Actually, you know, it's interesting because I went from a full-time job plus all of the nerd night stuff, and so like almost like six jobs I'd sort of say I used to have. Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. the full-time job at the Space Center is now down to three days, and nerd night is still lots of work with the podcast and the other jobs of less. But what that means is I'm working more from home, so I actually sleep more. And I hate the morning. Anything before 9 a.m. is just awful for me. So actually being able to sleep till when my body tells me it's okay to wake up seems to be doing wonders for me. So I'm actually sleeping great. <laughs> oh, well, that's really good. For me, my cat dictates when I get to sleep most of the time. So that is, um, I'm really on her schedule. <laughs> but yeah, you were talking about, I mean, yes, we are doing this podcast. And actually part of what we talked to Rakeep about last episode was Rakeeb's podcast, which is Broad Science. Absolutely. And so Rakeeb is the founder and executive producer of Broad Science, which is an initiative aimed at making science inclusive, engaging, and intersectional through podcasting. So yeah, we really enjoyed that conversation. And, you know, I think Broad Science is a podcast that I think is an inspiration for us. Hell yeah. So we really wanted to put this into our podcast feed so that uh, our listeners can check it out as well. So we're going to share that conversation with you that we had with Rakeep and then keep listening to hear a clip from Broad Science. So I want to talk about one of your many science communication initiatives. So in addition to your research, you're the founder of Broad Science, which is an initiative which makes science more inclusive and intersectional through podcasting. And I mean, Rakeem, you know, Broad Science has quite quickly become one of my favorite podcasts, but it's also a lot more than that. So there were live events, engagement with kids in the community. Would you share with us a little bit about your vision and how Broad Science came to be? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. You're, you. It makes my heart so happy when you shout out Broad Science and listen to our stuff. So that's awesome. So Broad Science started in my head. <laughs> I think it was the first few months of my master's program, I kind of quickly became aware of some of the diversity issues within science. So not only the visible diversity issues as, as a Black woman in science, the higher up you go into academia, the, the less folks that look like you. I also have, have never had a teacher or a professor who was a Black man or woman. And I and actually should say not even in elementary school um, or high school. So yeah, so that was playing on my mind. But I think what really kind of a light bulb moment for me, I would say, uh, was doing research and realizing that a lot of the research that I was conducting was primarily on data sets where there was a lot of middle, high income families with of European descent, particularly in genetics now, we know that most of these large genome-wide studies, about, up to 80%, are done on individuals of European descent. Mm -hmm. And just thinking to myself, am I 
impacting or having a positive impact on the communities that I grew up with, the communities that raised me and who were disproportionately impacted by the production of science at times. And I think that, you know, the answer was no. (laughs) And then in parallel, I started to listen to stories, science stories on the radio, reading in print, and realizing that those, those issues were mirrored in the way that these stories were told and that it often either excluded marginalized voices or somehow framed them as a deficit, like something is wrong. And those were the only times that they were brought up. And I was really frustrated by this. And so in my master's, I really wanted to figure out a way to dismantle some of that kind of marginalizing STEM culture that I found myself, you know, really wanting to love because I do love science and I love researching, but it was all very problematic. And so a friend and I, we just started discussing, okay, like, could we make our own stories? Can we talk about issues that are not salient in popular media? And I went to my local radio station, CKUT, shout out to CKUT, (laughs) and started to learn how to kind of mix and produce. And Broad Science really started off uh, with a one, like, audio documentary where we were trying to understand the biases in chronic pain. So chronic pain disproportionately impacts women. And I remember being in class reading about how pretty much all the models, the neuroscience models of trying to understand chronic pain were done on male mice. And I'm like, what? How is this? Is this like, okay? Like, can someone talk more about this? Like, I'm interested. And I remember one of the articles had mentioned like, controlling for menstrual cycles being an issue. And I'm like, is this okay? Or are they allowed to say this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, like being really naive and just, you know, wanting to do good science. Like I didn't, I didn't know if we should be talking about these issues and no one brought them up with me in class. And yeah, so broad science really started as a way to like start questioning some of these biases within scientific production. And then also trying to recreate the format of what it means for audio stories to be told where the voices are led by marginalized people. The stories are led through the lens of folks who have historically been excluded from storytelling in this field. And so that's really how it started with those documentaries. And we've since gone on to make a few about AI, who isn't talking about AI these days, but the kind of biases in in AI or direct-to-consumer DNA testing and how that has had major implications on African-American communities and Indigenous communities here. Yeah. So, and then, and then kind of throughout the process of making that, we realized that audio, what an incredible tool, what an amazing way to democratize science because, hey, many folks have access to radio. So we're on our on the radio program at CKUT. It's fairly easy to make a podcast, so it's easy to disseminate. And then also like this could be used in in different ways to engage with audiences. So what we were doing with our audio documentaries, I wouldn't say was just bi-directional in terms of disseminating information because we were really consulting with the community while we were producing these audio documentaries. So they had a large say in, in what we should be talking about, how we should be talking about it, who we should be talking to. So they were very much major stakeholders in our documentary. Uh, making, but I really wanted to like use audio as a way to like 
engage folks more. So we started to we started a youth programming where we would get kids into our CKT radio station and they would learn how to be science journalists for the day. Oh my gosh. So they would be paired with a scientist and they would have to to research them and they would have to create questions, anything. Like and it didn't have to be about their science only. Like, you know, we wanted to talk about like who is this person that you're talking to? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're working with kids from underserved areas in Montreal. We're very, very cognizant of who we select uh, as scientists to be representing the science community. So we have a diversity of individuals from their career stages to their countries of origin. And so this way we start to use audio as a tool to explore some of these misconceptions about science. And so that's kind of how broad science started and then started to evolve. Um, These kids then get to interview their scientists on the radio uh, and then, you know, get to, you know, show it off to their friends and family. And then, you know, we started to do more live events like storytelling shows in a virtual reality center. And we turned that into a podcast as well. During COVID, we realized, oh, some of our programming is not going to be able to work. So, you know, because of the flexibility of audio as a format, we were able to, to do a show about accessible communication around the world. So we've been able to talk to people in Kenya and in the States and the UK. And like, so we wouldn't be able to do that without this format. But again, talking about very much diversity, accessibility, and inclusion in STEM. So yeah, I guess that's kind of the evolution of broad science in a in a not nutshell, in a, in a long rambly nutshell. No, I love it. I, I think it's such, it's so, so great on so many levels. And I love that it's, like you said, the democratization of science and, and bringing it to podcasting. But I think the engaging kids at a young age to meet lots of different scientists and learn, like the, the meeting of the person, I think, is so important because one of the problems about trust in science, right, is that we see scientists as elitist. They don't like they're disconnected from the world. They're not people and mm-hmm. they are people. And yeah. that's I find so engaging is getting to know the people who do science and why they do it and why they're excited about it, but like also the other things that they're interested in and how all those things intersect. Absolutely. And you, you, you just hit the nail there. I mean, I think there was a poll that came out a few years ago that it was like 44% of Canadians found scientists to be elitist. And, you know, there's this perception that these scientists live in ivory towers, but, you know, we're not talking about the scientists who ride the bus with you every day, who go to the groceries, the same grocery store as you. And then another point that we really, really emphasize in our youth programming is, okay, yes, we talk about the scientists and who they are as humans outside of the lab, but we talk about their failures. We really emphasize the celebration of failing because that's what we do in science. We fail 99.9% of the time. (laughs) And then sometimes you get a paper out of it and it's awesome. But that, you know, is is a sign of progress. And we really want kids to be okay with failing and to not let that inhibit them from pursuing science because a lot of a lot of times when we hear from these these kiddos is that like oh like I'm not smart enough or like you know they're they're reading textbooks with like only Einstein and like only these Nobel Prize winners and only things that went right yeah we're not talking about the scientific process at all and so of course they're like afraid to engage with it in in a way that allows them to explore their curiosity and fail Um, so we really do emphasize that like holistic process of like, you know, 
scientists are humans, they fail, and you know, they just try again. And the trying again is really important because then you'll never get anywhere. Yeah, uh, really amazing. I love hearing the stories through broad science. Uh, if people want to learn more about broad science, where should people go? So you can find us on the web. Where are we? We're on Twitter. So if you type in at science underscore broads, we are there. Uh, you can find us on broadscience.org where you can get access to all of our audio projects, which are found on iTunes, Stitcher, I don't know, where you find your podcasts. And yeah, please like engage with us, talk to us, shoot us a message. We, yeah, we, lo we love discussing science and science communication. And now on to the episode. So we're sharing with you a clip from Broad Science's two-part episode, The Social Life of DNA. We mentioned it in the full episode last week with Rakib, where we discussed how science can be both misinterpreted, but also misconstrued to align with political beliefs and ideologies. So the following clip is just one part of that broader conversation. And for the full episode, check out The Social Life of DNA. And now we'll leave it to Rakib and her co-host, Angela, to tell us about some of the science behind DNA testing and some of the issues with direct-to-consumer genetic testing. Broad science. Making science engaging, inclusive, and intersectional. to the burning question, who is blacker? Charles Barkley is 75% African. Take that, Snoop Dogg. And tonight, Snoop Dogg gets his DNA test results. The main event starts now. DNA testing is everywhere right now. Time called it the invention of the year in 2008. There is an endless stream of DNA test reveals online and billions of people tune in to see their favorite celebrities reveal their family ancestry. The direct-to-consumer DNA testing market was worth 70 million U.S. dollars in 2015, and it's expected to rise to 34 million dollars by 2022. There are some companies that provide DNA testing for your pets, and even for dating. Wait, dating for your pets? I mean, probably <laughs> at this point. So, Rakib, have you heard of this company called Gene Partner? Ah, uh, do I want to? Well, it claims to have a formula to determine you and your partner's level of genetic compatibility. Oh, geez. <laughs> it literally seems like there is a genetic test for everything. I mean, yeah, because DNA testing promises to tell us who we are, where we come from, which groups we belong to. But is it really that simple? Are we our DNA? Or has it instead imposed just one way to think about how we fit into our social and cultural world? So before we go on this complex journey, let's start with the basics. DNA is a language that tells cells what to do. It's composed of four chemical bases, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine, or A, G, C, and T for short. One of the rules in this language is that DNA bases pair up with each other. 
A with T, C with G. We call these base pairs. And when you add a sugar and a phosphate to these base pairs, we get a nucleotide, or one piece in three billion that make up that famous double helix. And we have Rosalind Franklin to thank for that double helix discovery, even though the discovery is entirely credited to Watson and Crick. So please Google her. And fun fact: if you were to type out the whole of your DNA without stopping, it would take 29 years to complete. Ooh, I've got another fun fact too. If you were to take all the DNA from one person's body, which is weird, but if you did, and stack it up. You'd have a stack measuring 67 trillion meters long, or almost double the distance from Earth to Alpha Centauri, the closest star outside our solar system. That's just out of this world. Oh, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so now that brings us to the genes. Genes are instructions written in the language of DNA that tells a cell to create a protein. In humans, every person has two copies of each gene. One inherited from each parent. The Human Genome Project has estimated that humans have between twenty to twenty-five thousand genes. The majority of genes are the same across all people. Less than one percent of genes differ between individuals. We call these differences alleles. If a gene is an instruction written in DNA, then an allele would be changing one word in that instruction. I might have a T, while you, Angela, would have a C in the same spot, and it's those types of switches that explain why, for example, some people have blue eyes and others have brown eyes.、Mm. So the most common direct-to-consumer genetic ancestry testing method is autosomal DNA testing, which looks at your individual genetic variations and compares them to a reference population. Hmm. So basically, if I took a test like this and wanted to know if I was,、uh, let's say, Finnish or Japanese, chunks of my DNA would be compared to people who are known to be Finnish or Japanese, and the test would see if any parts of my DNA match the DNA of those reference groups of Finnish or Japanese people. But how do DNA ancestry companies make their reference populations? Like, how does a company decide that a group is purely Finnish or purely Japanese? For 23andMe to include an individual in its reference group, the individual needs to have four grandparents, all born in the same country that is not a colonial nation like the USA, Australia, or Canada. 23andMe claims it has 10,000 individuals in its entire reference population, but most of those individuals are European. The reference group for Korea, for example. Has only seventy-six individuals. That difference in size between reference groups leads to problems with the accuracy of a test, because a DNA test is just a prediction. A lack of data will lead to less accurate predictions. So when someone gets the results, they'll see broad categories like European, South Asian, Sub-Saharan African, etc., and those things will be broken down into smaller regions. So, for example, European is broken down into groups like British and Irish, which is one group, and then say French and German, another group. But why are French and German together, though? For people living in the 21st century, France and Germany are two totally different places 
But historically, the migration patterns of people there are exactly the same, meaning they share the same genetic variations, the thing that DNA testing looks at to determine its results. That's the limitation of DNA testing. It can only talk about historical migration patterns, but we want it to talk about modern geopolitical realities. And that was Broad Science. We hope you enjoyed it. I know that me and Kaylee did. Uh, so if you want to hear the full episode, you should definitely go to broadscience.org or find Broad Science on your favorite podcast platform where you know what to do, like and subscribe. I mean, that's what it's all about these days, really, is the likes <laughs> and the subscribes. You can do that with us, too, if you want. Absolutely. At Nerd Night YVR. And I believe we're streaming on any of the podcast platforms that we know exist. Thank you all so much for checking out this bonus episode. We're going to be back with another episode very soon. Right, Kaylee? Oh, yeah. Like in a week. <laughs> and until next time, check out Broad Science. <laughs>